Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. can open your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're just going to pick up where we left off last week. Jesus cleansed the temple. I mean, Jesus, that's where we're going today. Jesus cleansed the temple. Last week was the wedding at Cana. As you're turning there, I want to just begin by asking you two questions. And these may be questions that you haven't really thought of in a while, but I think they're important questions. Here's the first question for you this morning. What are you really passionate about? I mean, what are you really, really passionate about? What drives you? What motivates you? What are you passionate about? Maybe it's a sport. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a pastime. Maybe it's your job, a career your spouse, your family, what are you passionate about? That's the question, the first question. Here's the second question. When was the last time you expressed a righteous anger about something? When was the last time you really got angry rightfully about something? And here's what I've often found. Whatever you're most passionate about, When that gets challenged, when that gets uh, offended, when that gets hurt, whatever you're most passionate about, when that gets challenged or hurt or, or threatened, that's when you get the most righteously angry. Think about it for a moment. You're a parent, and your child comes home and tells you they were bullied at school. And as a good parent, everything inside of you just rises up and you want to go to the school and you want to talk to the principal and you want to get in that kid's face and you you just want to let all of this righteous anger come out because you're passionate about your kid. You don't want your, your kid threatened. Or think about this, you're passionate about your work, you're passionate about your job, and then you get wrongfully terminated. You get fired when you shouldn't have been the one that got fired. The person that was cheating, the person that was manipulating, they were the ones that got fired. And, and, you're, and you're so passionate about your job that you just have this righteous anger. You want to go talk to your boss. You want justice to be done. You see, what we're often passionate about, if it's threatened, if it's disturbed, sometimes we will respond with righteous anger. But let me ask you a more pressing question. When was the last time you were passionate, I mean truly passionate, about God's glory, so much so that you did something radical about it? That's that's a harder question to answer, isn't it? When was the last time you were so passionate about God's glory, about the gospel, that you were motivated to do something pretty radical about it? When was the last time that happened to you? You see, in this passage before us, Jesus gets passionate, and he responds with righteous anger because God's glory is on the line. Now, what did we see last week? We saw a wedding feast in Cana. 
Jesus changed the water into wine. It was a joyous occasion. Jesus was an invited guest. Jesus superabundantly provided the, the water into wine. It was a great occasion. But now what we're going to look at right on the heels is the exact opposite. It's not a wedding. It's not a joyous occasion. It's the temple. And it's an act of divine judgment, not joy. And Jesus is not the invited guest. He's the intruder. And Jesus doesn't change water into wine. He cleanses the temple. The zeal of the house of the Lord is what he's most concerned about. And so let's read together this episode in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal, for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Twice in this passage of Scripture, it tells us that it takes place during the Passover. Now, the Passover was one of the annual feasts that the pilgrims around the area had to travel to Jerusalem to actually celebrate in the temple. And we know what Passover was. It was instituted back in Exodus chapter 12. If you remember way back in your Old Testament, what did God tell Israel to do? Go find a spotless lamb, kill that lamb, and put the blood of that lamb on the doorpost and the lintels of your house. And on that night, when I send my destroyer, when I send my angel of death, he's going to pass over the camp. And if he passes over and sees the blood, your firstborn child will be spared. If he does not see blood, the firstborn child will die. And that's what happens to Egypt. All of the firstborn children, including Pharaoh's, die. But the, the Israelites are saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. And now up into Jesus' day, they're still celebrating it. And they have to go to the temple, and they have to kill lambs, and they have to sacrifice lambs. And so this is all in the context of Passover. Now this should, should ring something in your mind from what we saw just a few weeks ago. What was Jesus called? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it's very, very important that we see Jesus 
as the Passover lamb during Passover in the temple? And how is the true lamb of God going to respond to worship during the Passover in the temple? What's going on here? We need to keep that in mind because it's no incidental detail that John gives us that it takes place during the Passover. Now, let me just pass, gently, gently deal with or quickly deal with an issue that may, maybe you're wondering about. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you realize that Jesus cleanses the temple and it's at the end of his ministry. It's, it's just a few days before he dies. And here in John, it's at the beginning of his ministry. So the question is, are there two temple cleansings? There's two schools of thought. Some scholars believe that there are, in fact, two temple cleansings. There's the one here that John mentions, and there's the ones in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that's at the end of his ministry, that there's actually two. The larger school of thought, and what most people believe, is that there's actually one temple cleansing. And what John is doing here is John's taking it out of order, historical chronology, and he's placing it where he's placing it thematically, topically, to deal with what he's trying to to argue thematically. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Jesus does it. But I just wanted to address that because you may be wondering, are there two temple cleansings? Now, here's the main point of this entire passage. And you may not catch it until you dive deeper into what it means. Here's the main point. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus should be the chief passion of your life and worship. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus should be the chief, the primary, the, the overarching passion of your life and of your worship. And so this is going to address the death and the resurrection of Jesus and how we're passionate about that. And so what John does here is he shows us three things about this. Three things about why and how we are to be so passionate about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so here's the first thing that we see. Jesus has a burning passion for pure worship that's centered on his death. Jesus has a burning passion for pure worship. And that worship is focused on his death. And I will explain what that means. You see, here's the situation going on at Passover. These travelers are coming from all over the world to Jerusalem. And when you come to Jerusalem, um, you had to sacrifice animals. So every Jewish male, 20 years and older, had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and they had to pay the temple tax. Now, instead of buying your animals, like, say, some way at 300 miles away and bringing those animals, it was a lot easier when you got there just to buy your animal on site. Purchase your animal on site. And also, when you got to the temple, you had to pay the temple tax, but they did not accept foreign currency. So you had to exchange your currency in order to pay the temple tax in the appropriate currency. And so you really had to wait, like we do. When you, when you go to a new country, you can go into DIA and you can exchange your currency, or you can wait till you get to the country to exchange your currency. Either way, that's what's going on. And so here's what's going on. They had to do this. And the primary issue is not that they were selling the livestock, for the, 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 the Passover sacrifices. And the, and the real issue wasn't that they were changing money. Those things had to be done. That's not the issue. The issue was where it was taking place. It was taking place in probably what was called the court of the Gentiles. 
Now, normally what would happen is outside the Temple Mount, you'd go across the Kidron Valley, you'd go up, and there's the Mount of Olives. And usually they'd set up shop on the Mount of Olives. They'd do it outside the temple. So you'd go out there, you'd, you'd exchange your currency, you'd buy your animals, but it was never done inside the temple. Now, it's important that it's in the court of the Gentiles. You see, there was one place where only Gentiles, non-Jews, were allowed to worship, and it was the outer court. It was the only place they could worship. And so what this was, was this smacked of religious arrogance, and it was also anti-missionary because it was preventing the Gentiles the one place where they could worship. And so they were doing it in the outer court of the Gentiles. And so in this surprising act of righteous anger, what does Jesus do? He intrudes on the scene. He makes a a whip, and he overturns the tables, and, and he drives out the money changers, and he expresses a righteous anger. I mean, this is not the docile Jesus that's sometimes portrayed in popular culture. You know, he's carrying a lamb, and he's walking around with these pithy statements, with this blank look on his face and a British accent, and everybody's getting along. I mean, sometimes we have this picture of Jesus that he's kind of like this this mystical figure that walked around with his hands folded and just gave these pithy statements, almost like Gandhi. He was fully man and fully God. Jesus got angry. He got angry. Now, you may be a little taken aback by this, but let me just remind you, when Jesus got angry, it was a holy anger. It was a righteous anger. It was an anger in which there was no sin. He did not sin in his anger. He never once sinned. 1 John 3, 5 tells us that. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 1 John 3, 5. In Jesus there is no sin. So you need to have a category in your mind for Jesus to be absolutely loving, but at the same time to express righteous anger, especially when God's glory and God's name and God's worship is on the line. And that's what he's doing here. This is not some type of an irrational outburst of behavior. Jesus is not out of control, flying off the handle, expressing infantile type anger where he just got really ticked off. No, this is a righteous anger, a holy anger, a perfect anger, a sinless anger that Jesus expresses. David Wells has written a great book, God in the Whirlwind, but he says this about the anger of Jesus. I like what he says. He says, his wrath, his anger, is about restoring to an unchallenged position all that is good, pure, true, beautiful, and right. And it's about removing everything that challenges his rule because it is bad, impure, rebellious, and evil. See, that's what Jesus is doing right here. God's honor, God's dwelling place, God's temple is being challenged. It's being challenged. It's being defiled. It's being dirtied. And Jesus is not going to let God's glory go unchallenged. So he's got to address it. He's got to address it. Even if that means overturning tables. Even if that means making a cord, a whip, and driving out these people. His disciples remembered Psalm 69, 9. Verse 17, his disciples remembered what it was written zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69, 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So what does Jesus have here? He's got a zeal. 
He's got a passion. He's got a burning passion for the house of God, for God's worship, for pure worship. He is burning with anger, a holy, righteous anger, because God's worship is being defiled. The Gentiles are being prevented worship when they should be allowed access. Mark eleven seventeen. You've got Mark's account, whether it's the separate, another cleansing or the same cleansing, either way. He was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All the nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. Notice what Jesus says there. You're, that my house, God's house, is supposed to be a house of, of prayer, a house of worship for all the nations. So that every tribe, tongue, and people group, not just the Jews, can come and worship God purely. But you're setting up shop in the court of the Gentiles, preventing them from worshiping. You're being anti-missionary. You're being ethnocentric. You're being racial. You're you're destroying the worship that God has when he desires that all nations come to him. You know, John Piper has made this famous statement. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. You've thought about that? Therefore, worship is the fuel and goal of missions. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Why do we do missions? Because there are people not worshiping Jesus right now. Why was there a court of the Gentiles? Because God had in his heart for the nations to come, not just Jews, but all nations, tribe, tongues, people, the Gentiles to come and worship. That's why we do missions. That's why we go to India. That's why we go to Russia. That's why we go to Nicaragua. That's why we go around the world. So the nations will worship Jesus. But we can't skip over the fact that it's taking place in the temple. What was the temple? It was that one structure that was the focal point of Israel's religion. I mean, it was, it was on the highest mountain in Jerusalem. It was the focal point. It was the center. Everything in the life of an Israelite centered on the the temple, this great monumental structure. And the only acceptable way that you could worship God in that temple was through the Passover lamb. You couldn't just barge into the temple. You couldn't just walk into the temple. You had to worship on God's terms. And God's terms was, there's going to have to be a bloody lamb sacrificed to appease my wrath so that your sins can be forgiven. Passover in the temple but I want you to notice the passage of Scripture that they quote from Psalms. Zeal for, verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. What does that mean? When we think of being consumed by something, what do we think of? Well, it takes up a lot of my time. It really takes up a lot of my interest. It consumes me. That's not what it means. What happens to really be consumed? You die. If you're consumed in a fire, what does that mean? You die. What Jesus is saying here is that my passion for the house of God is going to eventually kill me. It's going to consume me. I'm going to die. Why? Because he's the Passover lamb. One day in the true temple of his body, the true Passover lamb is going to be consumed. The true Passover lamb is going to die on the cross because he loves his father so much it would eventually kill him. Now, he has a burning passion and zeal that consumed him for the temple right then and there, but ultimately his burning passion to obey his father would lead him to the cross and Jesus would be consumed. His body would die on that cross as the Passover lamb. Now, let's just think about us for a moment. Not that we're Jesus, 
But let's think about the example of Jesus here. Have you ever had a burning passion for pure worship that led you to have some righteous anger? I mean, how radically have you responded to impure worship? I mean, really. I will never forget the time when I was in high school and we were playing basketball at the Y in Colorado Springs and um, some youth pastors and some pastors were playing along with us and then some people from the community. And we're playing basketball and this guy from the community shoots and he misses a three-pointer and he says the Lord's name in vain out loud. And I didn't think anything about it, which is sad. I probably should have. But this pastor over here, he just immediately ran and got in that guy's face. And here's what he said. I'll never forget it. Don't blame God for missing that shot. You missed it on your own. And I will not tolerate you using the Lord's name in vain. Clean your language up or get off the court right now. Said it just like that. And I was shocked. That's radical, isn't it? But should it really be that radical? I mean, he's using the Lord's name in vain. I wonder how was the last time you were so radically bothered by something that it drove you to righteous anger to respond. Not that you're going to turn over tables and not go crazy, but think about this. We need to be real careful when we express righteous anger because we're sinners. Jesus was not. His anger was holy. His anger was sinless. Ours is not. But do we have that zeal, that passion for pure worship? Do we express righteous anger at appropriate times? You know, what was on Jesus' heart and mind right before he died? I love John 17, and it's going to take us a while to get there. It's the holy of holies. It's, it's going to take us a while, okay? So John 17, 1, just hours before he's being crucified, what does Jesus pray? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Remember, the hour means my death. That my death has come. Listen to what Jesus' prayer is. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I'm about to be consumed on the cross, and I want the zeal of the Lord to consume me. Father, in my hour of death, when I'm dying on the cross, I want you to glorify me and you to receive all the glory. I have zeal for your house. I have zeal for your glory. So number one, we need to have this idea that Jesus has this passionate, burning uh, just desire for, for pure worship, and that worship is focused on his death. The zeal of the Lord will consume him. He's the Passover lamb. He's going to die on the cross. But not only that, not just Jesus dying on the cross, but what happens? Jesus dies, he's buried, and what happens? Three days later, he rises again. So that's the second thing we see here. Second, Jesus is the true temple of God as evidenced by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the true temple of God as evidenced by his resurrection from the dead. Notice what happens there in verse 18. The, the Jews freak out that Jesus did this. That's radical. Nobody's ever come in and done this before, and so they ask him. Verse 18, who gives you authority? I'm kind of paraphrasing. Who gives you authority to do this? What are your credentials for doing this? What sign do you show us for doing these things? Who gives you the right, Jesus, to come in and do this? And how does he answer them? Does he answer them the way they want to hear it? We love the way Jesus answers questions because he never answers questions the way you want him to answer questions. Notice what he says. It's this real cryptic, mysterious statement. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What are they thinking? Destroy this temple? 
This huge structure that's taken 46 years to build? What are you talking about? You know, they're so concerned with the fact that Jesus um, cleansed the temple, they wanted to get his credentials, they didn't stop to think why he did it in the first place. They didn't stop to think, wait, wait a minute. The, the, the reason he did this is because there's impure worship going on here. They, they didn't care about that. They just wanted to hear Jesus' credentials. And what does he say? Paraphrase Jesus. Go ahead, guys. Crucify me. Kill me. Nail me to the cross. Let me be consumed on the cross. And in three days later, God's going to raise me from the grave. They didn't get it. They're thinking in human terms. They're looking at this big structure and thinking, it's taken 46 years to build this monument structure. Back in B.C. 20, Herod the Great began building it, and it really had taken uh, 46 years, and then it actually wasn't completed until A.D. 63. And so Jesus is the, is the replacement of the temple. He's basically flat out saying, listen, you're thinking about a structure here. This structure is going to die one day. A.D. 70, it's destroyed. Don't, don't worry about the structure. The real temple is me. I'm replacing the temple. He's already introduced this in the Gospel of John. Go back to chapter 1, verse 14. We keep coming back to this over and over again because I think it's one of the key verses in John. John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt, templed among us. And we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What did Jesus do last week? Remember, if you were here, he turned the water into wine. And what did we say that was? He was replacing all of the Old Testament external rituals with this new internal cleansing. That's the same thing he's doing here. He's replacing the temple, the structure of worship, this place where the Jews would come physically. He's replacing all of that and saying, listen, guys, the new temple is my body. I'm the Passover lamb. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again. Don't focus on the structure. Focus on me. I am the temple. I am the one that's going to be destroyed and raised again. And at the time, I don't think his disciples quite understood what he meant because he's, he's speaking cryptically. Destroy this temple. What temple are you talking about, Jesus? This one back here. Raise it again in three days. But notice the little caveat that John puts in there. Look at verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So they didn't quite understand what Jesus was saying at the time, but at the resurrection, they're like, oh yeah, I remember when Jesus said that. Do you realize that this is one of the things that Jesus is charged against at his trial? We'll see this later on. That's what he's charged with. This guy said he was going to destroy the temple. Well, they still didn't get it. Now, what's the significance of the resurrection? He, he says right there, the Jews said it's taken 46 years, verse 20, to build the temple, and you'll raise it up in three days, verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is talking about the glory and power of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul writes this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. It would be the saddest thing in all the history of mankind for us to gather as Christians on this day if Jesus never raised from the dead. Basically, he's saying, your faith is empty, and you're still sinners. You're still under God's condemnation. You're still hellbound. Nothing matters without the resurrection. So the resurrection is crucial, but I'm going to ask you a deeper question. When was the last time you lived in the power of the resurrection? Listen to these amazing words by Paul. I do not, I'll, I'll be frank with you guys. 
I do not understand all the implications of what Paul's saying here. But it's scripture, and I think we need to, to try to understand it. But in Ephesians chapter 1, 19 through 20, listen to the words of Paul. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. Now, what is that power? What is that might? Paul tells us in verse 20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. I don't know what that means fully, but it seems to me to say that the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, he's working in us who believe right now. That's some serious power. So when was the last time you stopped and thanked God for the resurrection of Jesus from the grave and thanked him for that power at work in your life? And are you living in that power? That's resurrection power. And Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it up. And so we live on the other side of the resurrection and we've got the power of God in our lives because the tomb is empty. It's amazing. So number one, do you believe, do you have a passion in the death of Jesus, the Passover lamb? The zeal of the Lord will consume him. Number two, do you have a passion? Do you believe in the resurrection? The death, the burial, the resurrection. That's all that Jesus is talking about. He's giving us a preview of coming attractions. I'm going to die on the cross as the Passover lamb. I'm going to raise again as the new temple. The temple's going to be rebuilt, if you will, after three days. But here's where it gets scary. Here's where it gets concerning. This is the third thing, and it almost seems like it's just an afterthought, but it's so important. Here's the third thing that John tells us. Jesus recognizes false faith, which should serve as a warning to religious pretenders. Jesus recognizes false faith, which should serve as a warning to religious pretenders. Look at verses 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. That sounds good, doesn't it? Many. All these people are flocking to Jesus. There's great evangelism going on. Oh, they're they're crying crocodile tears. They're walking the aisle. They're raising their hands. They're signing on the dotted lines. Everybody's coming to Jesus. But look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. What? Because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What's going on here? Many believed. Now we're going to see this in the Gospel of John, especially in chapter 6. And here's the issue. Many people will believe in Jesus for what they get out of him, not for getting him. That's key. There's a lot of people in this world that like what Jesus can give them, but they don't like Jesus. And Jesus won't have that. It says Jesus peers into their hearts. And as a matter of fact, there's a play on words there in verse 24. They're not believing in Jesus. He's not believing in them. He does not believe in their believing, literally. He does not believe in their believing. It was a spurious faith. You notice what the word spurious means? It means counterfeit, bogus, illegitimate, fake. Jesus could look right into their hearts and see where they were at. It was a fake faith. Jeremiah 17.10 says this, The Lord, I, am, I the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. 
That's what Jesus is doing here. He's testing the heart. He's searching the mind. And here's the thing. You can't hide from Jesus. You can't fake faith. You may fake it to everybody else. You may come into this place and look really like you're a Christian, and you can fake it. You can talk the talk. You can use the Christianese lingo. You can do all these things and fake it, and Jesus will see right through it. And here it says he does not believe, and you're believing. I'm, I'm reminded of a parable that Jesus tells about this. You remember the parable of the soils? A sower goes out, and he sows seed, and it, it falls on four different types of soil. The second soil, to me, is the scariest type of soil. It's called the rocky soil. What's the rocky soil? In Matthew 13, Jesus explains the rocky soil. Matthew 13, 20 through 21. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. That's scary. person hears the gospel. They immediately respond with joy. There's, there's this immediate decision. There's this, maybe they, they cried great tears. Maybe they walked an aisle. They had an emotional experience with God, but notice what Jesus says. There's no root. And if there's no root, there's no fruit, meaning there's no salvation. And when the trials of life come and the temptation of life come and persecution of life come, you fall away because you were not saved in the first place because there was no root. But it sure looked like you were saved. You were excited. You had joy immediately, but it was not saving faith. Here's the issue. We, we, we get our terms wrong in Christianity. How often do you hear people say this? Just accept Jesus. you hear people say that? The real issue is, does Jesus accept you? What does this text say here? Does Jesus accept you? Is your faith real? Is your faith real? genuine is your faith truly saving faith or is it bogus is it fake jesus gives some of the scariest words in the bible toward the end of the sermon on the mount and these haunting words should show us what fake faith really is listen to matthew 7 21 through 23 these are the words of jesus not Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, and that's the day of judgment, many, let's just stop right there, many. It does not say a few, it does not say a small amount. It says many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let me say this very clearly. You are not saved merely by your profession of faith, but by possession of faith. There's a huge difference. You can talk a good game, you can use the lingo. You can fool everybody else, but if there's no root, if there's no true saving faith, you're not saved. Now, let's just be real careful to make sure that we don't understand Jesus is saying you're saved by works. 
He's not saying you're saved by doing the will of Father of the Father. What he's saying is that if you're truly saved, it will prove out in works, in fruit, that show that you are giving glory to your Father. You're not saved by your good works. It's a fruit of your salvation. And the scary thing is that they've done all these religious things. What does it say there? Oh, we preached in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did miracles in your name. Newsflash, you can do all those things and still go to hell. It would be something like this in our culture. On that day of judgment, you stand before Jesus and you say, well, Jesus, I went to church. Jesus, I went on a short-term mission trip. Jesus, I was really involved in my growth group. Jesus, when the offering plate was passed, I gave money. Jesus, I got baptized. And if there's no saving faith, if there's no true faith, you will hear the ominous, haunting words of Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of many. And the scary thing about this passage is it says there will be many. There'll be many. So all of us here in this room will stand before Jesus on that final day. None of us will escape it. You will stand before Jesus on the final day of judgment. Get that in your mind now. You're not going to avoid it. You're not going to get out of it. There's no, there's no getting out of it. All of us will stand before Jesus. And so will you hear the words... I never knew you, or will you hear the words of Matthew 25, 23? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Depart from me. Enter into the joy of your master. Are you a religious pretender? I'm, I'm going to stop right now. I'm just going to pray. I'm not done with my sermon, so don't think I'm closing down. I just want to pray. This is such a serious issue that there may be some in this room today that are pretending, and I want to pray for you. Father, I just pray right now that you would take any distraction in this room out of this place. And Father, if there's anybody in this room today that's pretending, that's fake, that does not have true saving faith, they'd come under conviction and that they would come under strong conviction and that today would be the day that they stop playing games and they truly give their life to you in faith. Father, we trust you to do that. So here's the bottom line of this passage of Scripture. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus should be the chief passion of your life and worship. Not just what you do on Sunday morning. It's easy to sing on Sunday morning. It's easy to be a Christian on Sunday morning. But why do I use the term your chief passion, your number one passion, your chief desire, your main concern? Is Jesus and his glory and his death and his burial and the gospel, is that your chief passion? Are you consumed by that? The way Jesus was. Jesus was consumed in his death. He was consumed in his resurrection. He was consumed that you believe in him. Is that your same passion? Do you have a burning passion for pure worship? Are you submitting yourself to the true Passover lamb who died on the cross? Do you live in the power and the joy of the resurrection? Are you a pretender? In your heart of hearts, would you, would you be one who outwardly believes, fakely, 
But deep down in your heart, you know you truly haven't trusted Christ yet. You see, in this episode, Jesus is trying to show us something greater than just cleansing out the temple. Remember these signs, these things that he does, they're they're to point to a greater reality. We can look at this and walk away and say, wow, Jesus got mad and cleansed the temple. That's just barely scratching the surface. The issue is that Jesus has a burning passion for pure worship that's focused on the Passover lamb himself who would be consumed on the cross. Jesus has a burning passion for himself being the temple that would be destroyed on the cross but then raised again three days later. And Jesus wants to make sure that nobody leaves this place today with false faith because he sees right into you. He knows what's inside your heart. I can't see. Nobody else here can see. Jesus can see. So is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that the chief passion of both your life and your worship. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning and to think about what's just been preached. And I will just say this. When the word of God is preached, it demands a response simply because it's God's word. So how will you respond to the preached word this morning? Spend some time asking the Lord to search your heart. And if you've never come to faith in Jesus, would today be the day that you trust him fully for salvation? That you believe in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and you place all of your faith in him to save you from your sins and to give you eternal life in heaven. Would you spend some time in prayer? Father, please uh, forgive us for those times in our lives where we are so focused upon ourselves. Our burning passion is our agenda. Our burning passion is our ways, our worlds. And Lord, I know we all have things that are important in our lives. We do have jobs. We do have families. We're not saying that we don't give a time and attention to that. But Lord, so much of our time and energy and attention can be given into such temporary things that what really matters, you, your glory, pure worship, your cross, your resurrection, That's not the chief passion of our life. Maybe second, third, or fourth, but not chief. And Jesus, you were radical about worship. So much so that you you turned over the tables. I can't even imagine, I can't even picture in my mind, Jesus, what you did. If your face was red, if your voice got really loud, if people were scared. You, you, you were burning with a passion for worship. I wonder if we have that same passion, Jesus. We thank you that you are the true Passover lamb and you were consumed on the cross. Jesus, we thank you that you're the true temple that was rebuilt three days later in your resurrection. We want to be those that 
are not among the many on that day. So we'll hear those words, I never knew you. Would there be those in this room that would get it nailed down in this hour, in this moment? True saving faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you that your arms are wide open to all who would come to you in repentance and faith. You never turn away a sinner that comes in repentance and faith. Would we all come to the foot of the cross today and see you there in your death and in your glorious resurrection. And Father, as we walk out these doors, would we have a burning passion for the gospel? Would we live in the power of the resurrection? Would we tell others about the joy of the Lord being our strength? Change us individually, change us as a body. Would we never be the same because we've heard your word and we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit this morning? grant us the grace and strength to do it for your glory King Jesus it's in your sovereign name we pray amen